Well, good evening, everybody. It's really good to see you. Um, I hope you do find tonight's um, helpful. Do come and chat to me at the end. I've just remembered that the last time I spoke here, Mike afterwards sent me a TED talk about mushrooms in response to my talk. So I have no idea what he's going to do after tonight's one. Um, you should have a handout. Uh, there are very few slides tonight. This is uh, working a lot off the handout, which I hope will be helpful uh, for you. And as we start, um, I've got a quote from C.S. Lewis, because every talk apparently needs a quote from C.S. Lewis. It's, it's some kind of rule. Um, and here it is. I've only got half of it. The central miracle asserted by Christians is. The central mir- miracle asserted by Christians is. And I wonder how you would finish that quotes because I think instinctively I would finish it like this the central miracle asserted by Christians the central miracle believed in by Christians is the resurrection it's the resurrection and there's a strong case for that isn't there because Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 he says that the resurrection didn't happen then our faith is futile it's just a waste of time Um, but here is what Lewis actually says he says the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. And he called the incarnation the grand miracle. And his argument, which I also think is a strong one, is that the incarnation is foundational for everything that comes afterwards, including all of Jesus' miracles and including the resurrection. And tonight we get to think about the doctrine of the incarnation, which is, which is wonderful. And it's great to be doing it in March, because I think there is something unique about the doctrine of the incarnation that sometimes we can pigeonhole it into a particular part of the calendar. So we can think, this is the doctrine for December. Yeah? So when we come to carol services and sermons around that time, uh, we think about the incarnation, but not the rest of the year, not for January to November. But the incarnation is fundamental for our faith. It should be something that we reflect on every single day. Uh, it reminded me of that poster, you know, the poster from the Dogs Trust, a dog is, what is it, a dog is for life, not just for Christmas. I feel like it's the same with, um, with the incarnation. The most famous book written about the incarnation, the most famous book written on the incarnation was by Athanasius, one of the great early church theologians who suffered for, for, for his faith. Um, and he called it, anyone know what he called it? He called it On the Incarnation. So, great theologian, rubbish at writing book titles. A good book company, we'll have a field day with him. But the interesting thing about that book is that when you start reading that book, if you just like go to a random page, you, th- you realize he's not really talking about Christmas a lot of the time. He's talking about the cross, and he's talking about the resurrection, and he talks about creation. Because he's saying the same thing as C.S. Lewis, which is that the incarnation connects to everything else about Jesus. It's foundational. It affects everything. And we will see a bit of why that is tonight. So here's the plan. Um, This week and next week come under the heading of the person of Christ. And we're going to think tonight about what the incarnation is. So if you're doing Crosslands, I think you've done some other things this week. You've done the incarnation, but you've also done uh, Jesus' kingship. And I'm sure you're going to discuss that afterwards. Um, But tonight we're just going to focus on the incarnation about the moment when God the Son took on a human nature. And we're going to think about the virgin birth as well about, as a really special sign of that. And then next week, you're going to think about the person of Christ. And what does, it, what does it mean? Unpack a bit more about what does it mean that Jesus is both God and man? And how do people sometimes go wrong with that? So what is the incarnation? Um, I'll put a short definition on your sheet. Uh, here's my short definition. God the Son takes on a human nature, but not sinfulness, while remaining fully God's. Um, Let's look at John chapter 1 to unpack some of that. 
So John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So the Word is the Son, and we see that the Son was with God, and we see that the Son was God. So we see something of the Trinity, what we looked at a few weeks ago, the doctrine of the Trinity, this, this belief, this fundamental belief uh, that God is one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally, simultaneously, in perfect, loving relationship. And you see parts of that at the start of John chapter 1. And the Son of God was there in the beginning. He's there at the creation of the world. In fact, he's there before the creation of the world because all things were made through him. Uh, and then I'm going to jump down to verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John says this Son came from the Father into his creation. And when he came into his creation, humanity was able to see God's glory. And the way John describes that at the start of verse 14 is that the words became flesh. God the Son became flesh. Where it says flesh, it it represents humanity, humanness. So the physical side of it, but also just human nature. Um, And the Latin word for flesh is carne. And sometimes it's unhelpful to talk about Latin and Greek. But this is a word we actually know already. Um, If you've ever had chili con carne, chili con carne is literally chili with meat, uh, chili with flesh, which might put you off if that's your dinner for tonight. Um, Chili with flesh. And so the incarnation is literally the enfleshment of the Son of God. He becomes flesh. But the theological truth behind that word is that God the Son, who has been part of the Trinity forever, who created the world, has stepped into his creation, and as well as keeping his divine nature, he also takes on a human nature. That is the incarnation. So he's not changing from being God to being man and leaving behind his godness. He's not moving from one to the other. No, he's completely God the Son, fully God. In fact, he continues to uphold the universe, but he also takes on a human nature. And the Crosslands unit this week um, had an interesting question at the start. It said, how long has Jesus existed for? And it's easy, isn't it, for us to think, it's Jesus, isn't it? Jesus has been there forever. Like he's, the, he's part of the Trinity, he's been there forever. But the Bible says God the Son has been in existence forever. He is eternal. Jesus is the name that is given to that baby, that God's man, at the moment of the incarnation. He is the Son of God incarnate. Uh, Jesus takes human nature from Mary, um, but he does not sin, it says in Hebrews 4, verse 15. And you might think, well, like all humans sin. Isn't like part of humanness that we are just broken, we're messed up? Every human being is sin. But actually, Adam and Eve, before they took the fruit in the garden, they were humans without sin. And that is what Jesus is. Some people will argue that we see glimpses of God the Son in the Old Testament. Now, this is sometimes called the pre-incarnate Son or the pre-incarnate Christ. And uh, we've been looking through the book of Exodus. And you see moments in the book of Exodus where God appears. So God appears to Moses at the burning bush. 
and God appears on Mount Sinai. Uh, and uh, God appears to, well, in Genesis 18, Abraham sees these messengers, these mysterious angels, but uh, there's some indication that they might be God or he might treat them as God. Jacob wrestles with God. In the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are put in the fire, and then a fourth figure appears, and that might seem to be divine in some sense. And, and people have different views on this. So some people think that this is God the Son in a kind of pre-incarnate form. Some people think this is just God more generally. Some people think this is just angels representing God. But what is definitely true is that um, even if it is God there, it's all momentary. It's all temporary. And even if it looks like a human, God has not taken on human nature. The moment of the incarnation is something uh, on a radically different level. It's the mysterious, wonderful culmination of all those moments where people encounter God because Jesus is God having taken on human nature. And Jesus still has that human nature. So it's not the incarnation is just for that period when he's on earth. He is still the God-man. And the incarnation is God stepping into the world. And it's really important that we see the direction of travel here. So um, the incarnation is about God's coming into the world, God stepping, God the Son stepping down into his creation. And he comes to be with us, he also comes to die for us and to rise for us, to save us. So God is taking the initiative. You see that all the way through the Bible, don't you? You see that in the book of Exodus. Always God's taking the initiative. Um, And if you think that there is a big gap between us and God, if there is a big divide, lots of religions, they think, well, there's a big gap between us and God. We need to build a ladder to get up to God. You need to somehow scale those heights to get to God. Sadly, some churches have have taught that kind of thing. But the incarnation says God comes down. God lowers a ladder down. He comes down to us. So Galatians 4 verse 4 says, When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law. When the time's ready, according to God's plan, God sends his son and the son comes. Um, And we see that in Philippians 2, um, and I don't know if you've got Philippians 2 open. If you don't, it might be worth going back to Philippians chapter 2. Dave read from it earlier. Um, I'm going to read it. Some scholars think this is an early hymn, and uh, I want us to look at the movement of God the Son in it. Now, I've left a little weird box on your sheet on the right-hand side, and what I'd like you to try and do uh, is, I've never done this before in a talk, I'd like you to draw some kind of line or some kind of shape to, to show what you think is happening Uh, Kids, you can do this as well. What you think is happening to God the Son as we go through these verses. So, that might make no sense. I'm just going to carry on. Here we go. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What kind of shape do you have? I'm going to give you one minute to turn to the person next to you. What kind of shape did you have and why? Go.
My head is getting short. Okay, so here is my shape. I feel like I've lost the room now. <laughs> Just loads of art going on, brilliant. Um, here is my shape, um, I had a V shape, okay? So V shape, so you see um, God the Son, God for eternity, he steps down. He steps down, he takes on human nature. Then he goes even lower to the cross. Then he rises from the dead, and on the final day, everyone will acknowledge him as Lord. And that is saying that the one who created everything lowered himself so much that he was nailed to a cross, a cross made of wood that he created. And there's a song the, uh, which is called The Servant King. We sometimes sing it at KCC. And it includes these two lines. Hands that flung stars into space to cruel nails surrendered. The hands that flung stars into space, the, the hands that, that made the universe were nailed to a cross. There's more mind-blowing truth and mystery in those two lines than in every song in the charts put together. I heard someone talk about um, something a missionary had seen in Africa. Um, they were there in a, in a village, um, a tribal village, and uh, they, they had a well in it in the village. But it wasn't one of those wells where you had a bucket and a rope and you just lowered down the bucket and you got the water and you pulled it back up. Uh, it was called a slit well, I think, which is where you have to clamber down inside it. But they were quite skilled at doing this. Uh, and you get the water, uh, someone goes all the way down to the bottom, then climbs back up. But one man did it, and he, he made a mistake, he did something wrong, um, and the well, uh, the side of it broke, and he ended up falling down to the bottom of the well. And he broke his leg. And he was there screaming in agony, and all the village people came uh, to the edge of the well. And he's down there right at the bottom. Uh, and eventually, the, the tribal chief turns up. He's wearing his headdress and his tribal robes and whatever you wear. Um, and he looks down into the well, and then he takes off his headdress, puts it on the floor, takes off his robes, gives it to someone, and then he climbs down into that well. And he clambers down into the mud and into the dirt, and he goes all the way down to the bottom, and he grabs the guy, and then he pulls him back up to the surface. Um, and obviously, that is a great picture, isn't it, of what the Lord Jesus does, that he goes down into that well. He comes down into the muck and the dirt of a sinful creation, a sinful humanity that has turned against him so that he can bring us back up, so that he can bring us back to God. But the other interesting thing about that story is that when that tribal chief took off his headdress and when he took off his robes and he climbed into that well, he didn't stop being the chief. So he gave up those things, but he was still the chief when he was down at the bottom of the well. And Philippians 2 says that the Son is in very nature God. He gives up his status and comfort and privilege and majesty, the things we talked about tonight, uh, sung about tonight, and he comes down into creation. But when Jesus walked the earth as a man, he was still fully God. Still fully God. So when the shepherds, when the wise men stare into the face of that baby, they're somehow staring into the face of a human baby who's also God. But that that the Son of God is still upholding the whole universe. I mean, that, that is a mystery, but that is also what we are taught. And, and this is what God's people have been longing for, even if it came as a shock to some of them. So in Exodus 33, 
I'm kind of jumping ahead in our morning sermon series, sorry. Um, but in Exodus 33, Moses is speaking uh, to God and he's on a mountain. Um, and this is a mountain where there's been flames and there's been smoke and there's been thunder and the people have not been able to approach the mountain. And God has said to them, if you come to the mountain and you step on the mountain, you will die. But Moses had been allowed up the mountain. And Moses says this to God. I'll put it on your sheets. Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, the Lord said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Even Moses he cannot really see God's glory. He cannot see God's face. Uh, John 1, verse 14 again. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son, the one who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. This is the moment that everything has been building up to. God has come into the world. Um, and I'm going to read some, uh, some words from Hark the Herald, which I just think is such a fantastic carol. I think it's a shame we can't sing carols all year round, but I did ask Dave Sims, he said no. Um, but I think that might be contentious. I don't know. Um, but I just think there is um, there's so much truth in here. I'm just going to read one of the verses. Just think about these words uh, from Charles Wesley. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, we can see him. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Um, you know, there are lots of religions that would find that incredibly offensive. They find that offensive. You speak to a Jewish person, a Muslim person, they would go, that is horrendous. God coming into the world and taking on human nature, no. But that is the, the grace of the gospel that God does that. Um, I've put on your sheet something called the Chalcedonian Definition, which is from 451 AD. Uh, this is uh, from one of the church councils. I'm not going to read through it now because of time, but you might want to read it later. Um, it is from a few hundred years after uh, Jesus walked the earth, but it is church leaders getting together and saying, uh, this is what the Bible teaches. This is what we believe about the person of Jesus. Um, and I think it's important to see these things, partly because people died for this. They died to proclaim these truths about uh, Jesus. And you might go, okay, that's, that's interesting. <laughs> Thanks, might have learned some stuff. But I have no idea what difference that is supposed to make, make to my week. I, ca I can't really make the connection between this stuff and then tomorrow, or being at work, or Thursday evening. But of course it should. It should lead us to awe, and wonder, and worship, and trust, and obedience, and prayer. Um, but because it should, I think here's the big thing, it should reorient our view of God. So a lot of the time we have the wrong view of God in our heads. So we think of God as being over there. God is distant. God is aloof. God's, God's over there, he's up there, and he doesn't really care about us. And he's not really interested in us. And he particularly doesn't care about me because of my sin. So because of my sin and my uncleanness and the way I treated God and the way I treated other people this week, this afternoon, the last couple of hours, if you're my family, um, then God doesn't want to know me. 
doesn't want to know me. And there is a slight possibility that if I work really, really, really hard and I do some kind of Christian church things and I try to not sin for long enough, then maybe I can climb that mountain, I can climb that ladder and I can sort of maybe get to God and get a glimpse of God. Or maybe it's just not worth it. And what I need to do is I need to just wait for two or three days to sort myself out. Then I can pray to God. Because if I pray to God now, God doesn't want to hear me. But maybe in a few days' time, I can pray to God or, or sing to God or, or, or just be in relationship with God. And the incarnation says that is a lie. That is a lie, and is a lie that Satan tells us. Because the incarnation says, this is your God. And your God, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus, your God is nothing like that. So here's what Mike Reeves, the theologian, said. Uh, he's preached here a couple of years ago. He says, the incarnation says, behold your God. Your God is the friend of sinners who showed compassion and came from heaven to go to those who were full of shame, to go to those who were unclean, to go to those who aren't sorted, to call sinners to himself. This is what God is like. And there is no other God in heaven apart from this. So when this week you feel like that, when this week, when this week you are thinking like that, You need to turn your heart from Satan's lies and turn your heart to the gospel. And particularly this week to think of the miracle of the incarnation. That God comes to you in your weakness, in your brokenness, in your sin. He climbs down into that well. And right now, where is the incarnate son of God? Where is he? Because this is all 2,000 years ago. What's he doing now? Right now, the incarnate Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, is seated at the right hand of his Father in heaven. And he is speaking to God the Father on our behalf, on your behalf, and he has compassion on you in your weakness. I think that's a wonderful thing to remember this week. Let's turn to the virgin birth. The virgin birth. And the first thing to spot before we... We even get to the actual virgin birth um, in the Bible accounts, is that lots of the Bible accounts, maybe all the Bible accounts, start with uh, Jesus being God and him taking on human nature. So uh, this is something called Christology from above. What on earth do I mean by that? Christology is, is the study of the person of Jesus Christ. It's what we believe about the Lord Jesus. And if you start from above, then you are starting from the point of him being God the Son. And it means that the writers of the New Testament are convinced that this man, Jesus, this guy from Nazareth, who who walked and talked and breathed and ate and cried, this man is God the Son incarnate. And from page one, they want you to know that. They want you to know that. Now, that might seem obvious, but actually that isn't the experience of the disciples. Because if you think about it, when the disciples... Uh, were encountering Jesus, they would have heard things about him, then they were called by him, and then they saw things, and gradually, through the work of the Spirit, they pieced it together. You see that with, G- with um, Peter, where Peter, halfway through the gospel, he goes, oh, this man is the Son of God. And so you could have this experience where you work from Jesus is human, then you realize more and more and more things, and you go, oh, actually, he's also God. But the interesting thing is that I don't think any of them start like that. They don't want you to go through that process where you, where you gradually realize it. And you see that from how they began their books. So before a carol service a few years ago, I went to Waterstones in Kingston and I spent, um, I, I looked at the um, first pages of 20 different celebrity biographies um, until the staff just threw me out because I was being, being weird. Um, and all of them started 
um, the person's life story like this. Once they got into the story, they said, so-and-so was born in a terraced house in Swindon in 1973. Yeah? Now, the New Testament writers don't do that. So here's how John begins his biography of Jesus. We've already seen it tonight. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created by him. So he says, I'm writing this biography of Jesus, and this man that I'm going to be speaking about, in the first two sentences, I'm going to tell you he is God and he made the world. Here's how Mark begins his. This is the first sentence of Mark. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he quotes from Malachi chapter 3, which is about God coming to his people. So Mark very clearly is saying, this person that I'm going to spend 16 chapters talking about, he's God. Just know that from the start. In the book of Hebrews, uh, it contains some incredible truths about Jesus' humanity. Um, I've thought about some of them this week. Uh, Chapter 2 verse 14 says, since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of uh, death. In chapter 4 it says Jesus has sympathy on us because he knows what we go through, because he was human, he is human. But that's not how Hebrews begins. How Hebrews begins is this. In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And Matthew and Luke, they start with the virgin birth. So what is all that saying? I don't know if you... Come and speak to me afterwards if you want me to work you through with that. But what is all that saying? It is saying that the gospel writers and the writers of the letters are absolutely convinced that this person, this man Jesus, is God. And they want their readers to know that right from paragraph one. And for 200 years, liberal scholars have, come, have tried to dumb down Jesus' divinity. So they've made out that you can have some kind of, some kind of Christian faith uh, without Jesus really being God. There was a book written a few decades ago called The Myth of God Incarnate. And in the first couple of pages, it said, uh, we're coming to the realization that you can believe in Jesus, but you don't need to believe that he's God come into the world. That's not really essential. And the New Testament writers say, that is rubbish. That is absolute rubbish. From page one, they say, he is God. And I think it's helpful as well for our evangelism, just for our confidence. We can proclaim Jesus is God, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is creator. As we come to finish, let's uh, look at the virgin birth. And the virgin birth is, is maybe the central sign of the, of the incarnation. Uh, and we see the humility of God the Son and the glory of God the Son together. So um, there's lots of humility. He's born in a stable. He's born in Bethlehem. No one knows where Bethlehem is. Uh, he is uh, born in a, in a country that is under Roman rule. He's born in a manger, which cattle used to feed But we also see the glory. We see the angels appear. We see the stars move across the night sky. Um, And the virgin birth is is actually the virgin conception, if you think about it. So we're not told that his birth was unusual. Um, It was probably just normal, very painful. I'm sure baby Jesus cried, whatever it says in a way in a manger. But the, just a bugbear of mine. Um, But the miracle and the mystery is that Mary became pregnant without a man being involved. Um, And traditionally, some churches, some denominations have actually remembered the visit of uh, the angel Gabriel to Mary nine months before 
Christmas. And nine months before Christmas is March 25th, which is yesterday, uh, which feels like we almost planned this, which I'm not sure we did. Um, and you sometimes hear people say, okay, uh, but they believed in the virgin birth, but that was at a particular time. That was at a time where uh, everyone believed that kind of thing. It was quite primitive. It was before science. Uh, everyone believed these kinds of crazy stories. But obviously, Luke, at the start of his gospel, he says that he's investigated everything. He's sure that this is true. But also, the reason why Matthew and Luke include this is because it's incredible. They are going, this is not normal. This is not normal. Mary, when Mary is told about it, she says, how can this be? Actually, it would be a really strange thing for them to include because the Jewish religious leaders, the teachers of the day, were not expecting this to happen. This was not in any of their thinking that God would come into the world or that God would come in this kind of way. But Matthew and Luke are clear that this is God come into the world, that this baby is God's. Um, I've got some references down there. I'm going to skip over it um, because of time, but just references that just show again and again and again on page one, on page two, that this baby is both God's and this baby is human. And Matthew quotes from Isaiah where he says, this baby will be Emmanuel, God's with us. So what does the virgin birth teach us? I mean, there are loads of things. I actually cut some out um, because of time, but here are just three. The first is that it highlights the supernatural character of Jesus and the gospel. Uh, Karl Barth, a 20th century theologian, he said this. He said, uh, the virgin birth is a, is a sign that accompanies and indicates the mystery of the incarnation. The virgin birth at the opening and the empty tomb at the close of Jesus' life bear witness that this life is in fact marked off in the first instance, not by our understanding or our interpretation, but by itself. In other words, he's saying, right at the start and at the end, you have these two massive kind of shining things that go, this is who this man is. It's not really about how you interpret him, interpret him how you think about him, this is who he is. Another scholar wrote, the virgin birth is posted as a guard at the door of the mystery of Christmas, and none of us should think of hurrying past it. It stands at the threshold of the New Testament, blatantly supernatural, defying our rationalism, informing us uh, all that, that all that follows belongs to the same order as itself, and that if we find it offensive, there is no point in proceeding further. That is saying that when you get into Matthew, when you get into Luke, very quickly, you hit the virgin birth and they say, stop, stop. Look at the virgin birth. This is who this man is going to be. And you need to stop and you need to consider, are you open to this? Are you open to considering that this man is God the Son? And Bart would say, when you get to the resurrection at the end of the gospel, you get the same question. What are you going to do in response to this man who is God? who is God. It's blatantly supernatural. There's lots of other miracles to come, feeding the 5,000, water into wine, walking on water. But the virgin birth says, this is who this man is. He's different from any other person in history. Um, there's a scene in one of the Batman films where um, uh, there's a journalist who is trying to find out something about Bruce Wayne and he goes to one of Bruce Wayne's um, People who work for him, the, I can't remember, the butler. This is a long time ago that I saw this film. Um, but I just remember that uh, the, the journalist is just asking questions and is skeptical. And the person who works for Bruce Wayne just says, right, just stop, stop. You do not know who you are dealing with. You do not know who you are dealing with. 
And the virgin birth says, do you know who you're dealing with in this gospel? Uh, Second thing, it teaches us that it is God's work, not ours. This world is broken. This world is messed up. We need a redeemer, but we can't produce one ourselves. So the best scientists, the best educationalists, the most talented people, the best influencers, we cannot produce someone who can save us. There will never be a baby born to do that unless something comes from the outside, something miraculous. And the virgin birth is something that just, it's just ast- astonishing. And God is saying, I'm going to do this work of salvation, not you. This is not about you. This is about me. And here's the third thing. It humbles us. It humbles us. Um, on the first couple of pages of the Gospels, we hit something we don't fully understand. Uh, the virgin birth is extraordinary. So you even get um, miraculous births in the Old Testament, but the virgin birth is on a different level. Are you going to leave this talk tonight understanding it totally? No. Are you going to leave tonight having all your questions about it answered? No. Sometimes uh, I speak at carol services at school and people say afterwards, they say, oh, I think that's nonsense. It's not nonsense. It's true. <laughs> it's absolutely true. It's glorious. It's incredible. But it is a mystery. And the fact we can't fully understand it is probably God telling us to be humble, to be humble and to trust. Um, as we finish, let me read something from Augustine, one of the other early church theologians. This is from one of his Christmas sermons. And just take a moment. You might want to close your eyes. You might want to read the text as I go through it. Um, just think about these words and think about Mary and Joseph in that stable. Think about the shepherds. Think about the wise men. Think about when they looked at that baby This is the reality of what they were seeing. Augustine said this, Maker of the Son, he is made under the Son. In the Father he remains. From his mother he goes forth. Creator of heaven and earth, he was born on earth under heaven. Unspeakably wise, he is wisely speechless. Filling the world, he lies in a manger. Ruler of the stars, he nurses at his mother's bosom. He is both great in the nature of God and small in the form of a servant, but so that his greatness is not diminished by his smallness, nor his smallness overwhelmed by his greatness. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing in worship. Father God, thank you so much for the incarnation. Thank you that you are a God uh, who has compassion, who has mercy, a God of love, a God who comes to rescue Father, thank you that you sent your son into the world. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came. And thank you that you are the God's man. Thank you that right now you intercede for us at your Father's right hand. You have compassion on us in our weakness. And Father, this week, please, will we just come to you and pray to you and uh, live for you, knowing that we are welcomed, not because of what we've done, but because of what the Lord Jesus has done. Uh, Fill our eyes. Uh, evermore with the glory of who he is. In Jesus' name, amen.